my name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're tackling the best of the best. Yes, that's right. We're selling out and discussing James Cameron. I was excited to finally see a James Cameron movie. <laughs> I'm the king of the world! <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've seen James Cameron movies. You've seen them. He's he's Mr. Movies, for God's sake. Yeah, it was a little S, because when you look at his filmography, it's almost surprising how few movies he's made. He's like that hitter who they pull in at the end of the game when they really need to, like, the bases are loaded and he's gotta <laughs> knock it out of the park. I don't or- think that's how baseball works maybe you mean like the fastball pitcher who will not no like... no, no i'm talking about a hitter for god's sake <laughs> I, i'm sure i know what i'm talking about i know, i know sports <laughs> you're mr sports he, he comes in you know every six games and then he just knocks it out of the park mm. and then he goes back into the the dugout that's what it's called and why don't they just have him play for every time <laughs> i know well james cameron titanic avatar terminator terminator 2 judgment day aliens were you one of those kids as i was that watched a film like terminator 2 over and over and over again because it was one of the few VHSs that my dad owned. So every time I would visit once a week, we'd probably watch Terminator 2. I was not allowed to see it until I was 13. Okay. Well, that's probably when I saw it as well. However, what I did see as a kid was T2, the 3D ride at Universal Studios, where I got a Terminator t-shirt and I felt pretty cool as a kid wearing that Terminator t-shirt for an R-rated movie on the schoolyard. You were scared that they were going to stop you and pull you aside and go like, get that out of here. And here's what I remember about the T2 ride at Universal Studios. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but this is the Cameron episode. This is for posterity. They got Arnold back for the ride. And I think maybe they got Furlong back too. I can't remember. Everyone was back in the video portion of the ride. And there's a scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger shoots one of the evil Terminators and Furlong says, did you know him? And he goes, high school roommate. I believe it was college roommate. Oh, col- that's right. You have roommates in college, not in high school. Anyway, college roommate, which is funny because that implies the Terminator went to college in the future world that he comes from. Seeing how you had not seen T2, did you assume there would be a portion where he was in college? Kind of like a Terminator university. I remember seeing that as a kid and not liking it. I remember thinking that joke is a joke too far. Mm. That's ridiculous. And that's why I still remember it 25 years later. Even though Terminator's maybe cracking those one-liners because he learned it from his good pal Eddie Furlong, as he does in T2, the classic. So Terminator 2 is definitely a big bonding movie for children, and then Canada's own. That's right, he's from Canada and he left it behind as soon as he could. (laughs) Never went back, waiting for that Canadian heritage moment of him uh, hallucinating in a hotel room during Piranha 2 and picturing that metal hand coming up and going, oh, I finally have the plot from Terminator, even though Harlan Ellison would have something to say about that because he sued Cameron for copyright violation based on his Outer Limits story, The Demon with the Glass Hand, and he won. James Cameron making a movie that's derivative? I mean, <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, speaking of movies clearly inspired by other stories, uh, Titanic. You had this one on VHS as a child, right? Of course. I had an older sister and she watched it again and again and again. I saw it multiple times when it played in theaters as well. So when I was a kid, you had the two VHSs, and the first one was the one where you saw boobs, and the second one was where all the rest of the cool stuff the was. The teacher's, like, jumping up to cover the television <laughs> when it happens. I would often watch the second VHS tape, because like, okay, forget all you that. You just want to see the guy, like, hit the uh, uh, smokestack and bounce off. Of course I did, and a lot of cool stuff in the second half. About a year ago, my girlfriend was watching Titanic on Netflix. And you were probably listening to Come Town, walking by, being like, <laughs> alright, Titanic. I was definitely 
definitely I was doing work on something. I had my laptop and I was just like, okay, yeah, put that on the background. I don't care. I'd spent years assuming that Titanic was like kind of corny, kind of, you know, Oscar-y. Just slowly but surely, I'm like looking up, I'm looking up, laptop gets closed fully immersed in Titanic. Titanic is a great fucking movie. There's a reason that people went back to it again and again, and it's not because of uh, Leonardo's, you know, beautiful eyes. I mean, that is definitely a portion, but it is so well constructed that it's just a blast to experience. James Cameron is an amazing craftsman. That is undeniable. The second half of Titanic. So it's amazing that in the scenes with Bill Paxton, they basically say, okay, here's how the boat's going to sink. It's going to hit the iceberg. It's going to do this. It's going to this going to do this so you already have a guide that's the story that you're following you know how the boat's going to sink and then cameron he has a bizarre brain he's obsessed with every single thing that happened on the titanic so the main kind of anchor story is this love story between leo and kate and you're invested in that but then he's also like okay what's happening at every other part of the titanic while it's sinking what's happening in this room with the old people what's happening with the band that's playing you know all these pieces together was what makes it sing he's building the greatest theme park ride in the world with movies like this. I wonder if Cameron would like scoff at that. He's like, nah, I'm making art. I think he probably uh, wouldn't scoff at it. I think he does think he's making art, but I did see an interview with him once, one of those Oscar round tables where he was like, I don't make festival movies. I make global movies for the global audience. That's how he thinks of himself. And Cameron does have one of those mythological stories of You know, he comes to L.A., he works in the art department for Roger Corman on stuff like Battle Beyond the Stars. His work is so good and he's such a hard worker that Corman gives him a plum assignment. One of the most prestigious assignments you can give a man, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Oh, I just know that he met the Italian director, the man who gave us The Visitor and other things like that. And according to Cameron, the producer hired him knowing he would fire him at some point so he could take over the film and he could be the director, which had happened multiple times on Tentacle and other films like that. But uh, who knows? Anyway, have you seen Piranha 2? Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's not a lot going on there. And there's a reason that nobody has ever said a nice word about it. The only time anybody watches it is when they go, oh, wow, James Cameron's first film. I mean, are those people also checking out Forbidden World, the alien ripoff where well, I was Cameron put uh, <laughs> McDonald containers to make the walls of the spaceship. And you know what? It looks pretty cool. So from there, he bounced back. Uh, he made Terminator, a little movie you might have heard of. Now, Terminator, I think, is important for a number of reasons. And a way that I rarely hear it talked about is how it kind of did to a particular genre what Jaws did to the monster movie, which legitimized it in a way, treated it very seriously that other films have attempted but have rarely been able to recreate. So what genre is Terminator working Kind in? of science fiction, robots, action style. Mm. And you see a lot of movies that are Terminator ripoffs, but none of them are doing it like the Terminator. The specific aesthetic that Cameron is bringing to it and just the way that he lights or paces a scene is like nothing else. It's a wonderfully stripped down movie. Like it's one long chase scene. The characters are kind of archetypes Mm -hmm. the way that they always are in his movies but i don't know it's funny people knock cameron for having like corny dialogue or these really stock stories really stock characters and first of all i think his dialogue's fine yeah it's Uh, fun and the stories they're stock because they work Mm -hmm. you know like he's doing the best version of these possible so like why would you uh 
I guess because you want to see something original, but like these things work for a reason. And yeah. if he's doing it better than anyone else, that has incredible value as just a product and an experience and for always, an audience. And he always has great actors in the trailer. Well, I don't know about that. I, I, wait, okay. Avatar. Uh, Sam Worthington. Sam Worthington's a beautiful man. <laughs> But uh, no, in Terminator, it's Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean, and they're great. Like, they bring a lot of innate likability to it. I mean, she's, it's the corny character of, like, somebody who doesn't think she has it and then realizes that she's the chosen one as mm-hmm. the thing goes on. But I don't know, she brings a lot of uh, vulnerability and sweetness to it. Arnold Schwarzenegger. The role he was born to play. <laughs> what is there to say about him? Let me just say, having watched it again, I forgot that the... I'll be back scene is funny. Yeah, very funny. Very funny. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason it was iconic and you see it in all of those clip shows, which I'm sure you saw probably before you even saw the movie. It's a great, just structured movie. He has a masterful sense of pace and tempo. Let's all go visit Tech Noir, the ultimate club. The idea of this unstoppable killing machine after you and you just feel outmanned, outgunned at every point. The only thing to guide you along is this crazy man who says he's from the future and he says that you will eventually uh, bear the Jesus Christ of this future world. The stakes couldn't be higher. It's amazing. And it's done just perfectly. This B-movie premise, I'm putting this in air quotes, done in a specific way, and I keep saying this word specificity, this almost like chrome look, the slow motion, uh, smoky by way of Tony Scott, Mm. era-defining film that came out in 1984, basically defining an entire genre, an action film for thousands seemingly of movies. Without the Terminator, we would never have Lady Terminator. Well, that's true. Uh, (laughs) And well, we'd be so much poorer for that, wouldn't we? (laughs) Uh, we also wouldn't have Terminator 2. Which one do you like better, Terminator 1 or 2? Listen, everybody goes through a period where they go, well, Terminator is clearly the superior film. Terminator 2 is much better. It's so much more fun. Saying you like Terminator better. Yeah, because it's, it's more down and dirty. It's mm. like saying you like Fistful of Dollars better than The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's like saying you like, you know, the early Beatles more than Sgt. Pepper. Terminator 2 is the ultimate Hollywood blockbuster. Probably will never be topped. Nothing will be like it ever again. I mean, definitely not in the current climate of movie making. It's impossible. You're just exhausted by the end of Terminator 2. I don't know as a kid how I watch it again and again and again. It just works. I mean, those characters and I, I, I've that guy carrying the Pepsi who's like, hey, what are you doing here? And then he gets shot by Robert Patrick. Like the comedy works, all that ridiculous stuff of like Hostel Vista Baby is funny. Edward Furlong, who is dubbed for most of the movie because his voice cracked Such for the second cool half. Such a cool dude, that kid. He's so cool. You can't go around killing people. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I, I love how it just keeps going and going and going. I mean, towards the end, you're almost like, please stop. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> uh, well, we've gotten to the uh, Iron Foundry where there's lava all over the place. So f- from Terminator 2, he's the most powerful man in the world. Probably not. Spielberg's probably more powerful. Yep. I'm just talking out of my Do you think ass. James Cameron's jealous of Steven Spielberg? I think he probably admires him greatly. Do you think he looks at Spielberg and he goes, how can this man make so many movies while I'm stuck in this very small filmography that he keep chipping away at them? Well... At one of those Oscar roundtables, in fact, maybe the same one, it was the year that Avatar and Inglorious Bastards were both up for picture. And Tarantino was saying the thing he always says about how, you know, he plans to retire after 10 movies because old directors, it's like boxers, you know, directing's a young, directing is a young man's game. But whereas Cameron had a different perspective, he said, I can direct into my 80s. That's fine. What I can't do into my 80s is underwater scuba diving and like going many, many fathoms under the sea and uh, <laughs> 
exploring the just the physical toll of those kind of stuff was too hard on him so i think he's probably quite satisfied with his filmography and he's obsessed with always pushing the limit creating these new technology i think he probably likes creating technologies as much or more than he enjoys making movies i think he likes being an explorer he's talked about how his obsession with underwater is essentially you know a shortcut instead of space underwater is also somewhere that is you know not all tracked he can go deeper than anyone has ever before and it doesn't have the cost specifically associated with going up into space so that's what he decided to go into instead of doing which i'm sure he would have loved to do more space stuff i mean he did produce solaris a steven soderbergh film good commentary with soderbergh and cameron on the dvd i did not know that yeah it's excellent by the way did you know that tom cruise is supposedly making the first movie in outer space he's teaming with spacex yeah he's teaming with elon musk to do that (laughs) what do you think would happen if tom cruise died in a spacex rocket while filming it I think that would be the most poetic thing that could happen to him. <laughs> Tom Cruise like, I wish I could go out that way. Do you think it would help SpaceX? I think it'd probably hurt them. I think he's going to find a new planet next and he's going to start <laughs> movies on that planet. Yeah. Xenu or whatever. Oh, wait, is that the Scientology that, god? Zeno, Zenu is, uh, I think he's the Scientology Satan. Oh, we got to go get our, um, what are the Thetans checked or Satans? <laughs> I'm, hey, I'm clear. <laughs> I'm going clear. I'm going clear. Speaking of being underwater, The Abyss. This is, you know, kind of the forgotten Cameron sometimes. It's the one that wasn't a hit. I watched it last night. You watched it. What do you think? I think it's all right. Had you seen it before? Uh, this is the only one I'd never seen. Wow. I'm ashamed to say that on mic. I think I watched it in class. Like a teacher just put it on. Like, I don't know, The Abyss, James Cameron. You kids like this stuff, right? <laughs> and it was one of those tapes that just kind of laid around. No pretense for educational value. I remember a decade ago, I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, this one's good. The one that no one really talks about it's kind of like a haunted house movie but underwater and then watching it again this time i'm like yeah it's just it's just friggin' alien like ridley scott's alien it's good though it has a bit of that thunderball problem of being underwater <laughs> i agree it's an so all that inherently <laughs> dynamic although no no movie has done it better than this one uh yeah i'll agree with Can that you name another one <laughs> no i hate all underwater movies they stink you move so slow <laughs> it looks beautiful though doesn't it, it does and this is the movie that everyone hated cameron for while shooting it. Have you read stories about the making of this? I read that Ed Harris almost drowned. He did. James Cameron almost drowned. Ed Harris refuses to talk about the movie. Like He's like, don't ask me about the abyss. I'm not going to answer any questions about it. The cast said they'll never make a sequel or anything like that. There's a story of the woman when she's supposed to be dead and Ed Harris is slapping her alive. Cameron like kept demanding them to keep doing it and she jumped off the table at one point and screamed, we're not animals! And then like ran off set. I believe there were similar stories on Titanic, weren't there i think Mm -hmm. the whole cast hated him by the end of that did you hear about that someone like spiked clam chowder on the set of titanic and everyone (laughs) had to go to the hospital (laughs) that's so funny and somebody thought that maybe they wanted it to be like a knock against james cameron but later on they're like oh we think maybe it was somebody that was working for the food company and let's be honest it was probably someone trying to get back to james cameron be such a jerk like that on set but yeah the abyss it's pretty good yeah i mean it does a lot of experimental stuff i feel bad saying pretty good given like just how much energy is like i don't care the film's not entertaining especially if it's a james cameron film i mean it is entertaining but it's just uh, it's it's alien if instead of a monster at the end it was mr burns being like i bring you love from the alien episode of the simpsons i think it's only a little bit disappointing in the context of cameron's filmography all the other ones have such propulsive energy to them you have like terminator you have aliens where it's like we're taking alien to the next level Mm -hmm. and then you have the abyss where it feels 
so oddly familiar to stuff that has come before. I mean, all his films do, but this one is not doing anything new other than the fact that Cameron clearly got obsessed with shooting underwater. Like that was his main, you know, drive for making this movie. I don't think it translates to the screen for me in the way uh, he thought it would. And also that it's a film that is really banking on a sense of awe in the viewer that it's like, wow, this, you know, uh, glowing alien. And it's like, I don't know. It doesn't look that good to me. I have a certain amount of awe with some of the underwater stuff. Sure. Okay. I just imagine Cameron like yelling at at his crew members, like torturing them in this giant tank they've been filming in for like seemingly years. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a guy that I want to work with. No. Although uh, if he came up to me tomorrow and said, do you want to do you want to be the star of Avatar I want, 3? Yeah. I would say I would say, uh, sure. I want you to be my new Chris Elliott, who does appear in the abyss. Yeah, I was happy to see Chris. Elliott. Have you heard the story that Cameron had so much fun with him that he was like, Chris, you're going to be in all of my movies. I'm going to find a place for you and then when Cameron was going to appear on Letterman Elliot did a, a a bit where he was like in a waiting pool like making fun of Cameron directing the abyss and Cameron was so incensed that he never spoke to Elliot again I think that speaks ill of James Cameron I think it does that he has very thin skin and not much of a sense of humor speaking of things that speak ill of James Cameron true lies now true lies man all of these movies I watched so much as a kid I think we had true lies unless I'm mistaken in French okay so true lies was an early i watched that with my dad r-rated movie oh really yeah that, that was very exciting he made me not look at the screen during the jamie lee curtis striptease <laughs> But your dad was like, look away, son, look away. I mean, all dad, the can we fast forward? No, no, no. One of us has to take this. All the horrific violence I was allowed to see, obviously. Yeah, so True Lies, it like The Abyss, it's a movie that you feel like James Cameron approached it going, I want to make my own James Bond film based on a French movie, which has the basic premise. It's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the world's greatest super spy, you know, just as misogynist as James Bond, all that other stuff, but like ramped up to 11. And he's also a normal family man in that classic Arnie way where it's like, if I ever lived beside someone that looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'd be like, what's going on here? Yeah, his name is like uh, Ted or (laughs) something. I think his name is Ted in Jingle Jingle All the the Way. way, Yeah. Ted! Like in Jingle All the Way, there's this kind of like weaselly guy who's on the verge of cucking him. Played by Bill Paxton. That's, that's right. right. He plays the Phil Hartman role in uh, this Bill movie. Paxton is great. He's so good. <laughs> As a sleazeball who is uh, tricking Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife. You know, this movie, when you give it the context that The Abyss was a movie that like James Cameron was struggling through a divorce when he was making. So it's kind of like a divorce fantasy tale where it's like, we're divorced, but at the end, the power of love brings us back together. True lies of the movie that he makes where he's like, ah, fuck this. Women, am I right, guys? You're right. He's venting his spleen because here he is. He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, he's the, the best in the world. He's the greatest director ever. He made Terminator 2. He made The Abyss. He revolutionized underwater photography. And here's this woman who's going after uh, Bill Paxton or whoever was the... <laughs> the second man in his private life. How can they not see that he is the most awesome dude in the world? Well, you know what he needs to do? He's he needs to capture of, his wife. He's the king of the world in a, in a way, you could say. He needs to capture his wife and torture her for 50 minutes like he does Jamie Lee Curtis in this film. So I do think that all that stuff leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've seen True Lies so many times over the years now that I, I'm almost I'm almost affectionate towards it. Even the stuff that's obviously problematic, hashtag about it. Because, <laughs> because it's like, it's True Lies. It's, it's iconic. Th- this movie is iconically problematic. <laughs> There's no other movie like it. <laughs> uh, I think that watching it this time, that middle stretch, once you get past Bill Paxton hanging out, it's just Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, oh, you know, wild. being in a room and they're like, 
are you sleeping with Bill Paxton? It's like, oh my God. Oh, vile. And even later on, like all Arnold does is show her that he's awesome, that he's an awesome dude who kills tons of people. And she's like, I'm back on board. The family unit is reconnected. But all this action stuff is excellent. Like when Arnold Schwarzenegger is like kicking a piece of wood that's throwing a machine gun into his hand, that he's uh, mowing down generic terrorists, you know, uh, all the audience is like, woo! One of the things that's great about James Cameron is the action scenes, of course. He's always coming up with interesting ideas for action scenes, like in True Lies, all the stuff with the horse chase throughout the whole city. It's like, he's he's very creative. That last Terminator movie, Terminator, uh, whatever it was called. Genesis? No, No, that was one after that. Terminator Reckoning? I don't don't even know what it was called. The one where Linda Linda, Hamilton came back. Yeah, Linda Hamilton's back. Anyway, that, so that's the movie. That was the first one since T2 that he was involved in, in some way. And I heard in very funny ways that he demanded, like, I want this kind of action scene. And the director was like, what? Okay, I guess. Okay, well, thank God he did, because I can just imagine it. I can imagine Cameron every six months is meeting this poor director in a room and is just like... The director of Deadpool, Tim Miller. Okay, let's face it. Cameron can do whatever he wants in mm-hmm. that company. He's the he's Does the he come one. in and his like, shirt's unbuttoned? And he's like, hey, Cameron here. Because you know he signs his emails, uh, James out. I can imagine him having meetings with the director of that last Terminator and being like, okay, I don't care what you do in this movie. What you have to have is an action scene in a falling plane. That was a demand of his that it happens in that movie. And it's a great idea. Yeah. It's a great idea. You know what I'll say? That was the year of uh, action scenes in falling planes and a little Indian film called War does it better than Terminator. Sure. Anyway, that Terminator movie has three or four scenes that are great ideas for action scenes. Executed. Yeah. Yeah. Executed by the guy who made Deadpool. And so finally, it's wild that we can talk so quickly, a mere 20 minutes and get through almost all of Cameron's filmography. I know we did not, you know, linger on Aliens. It's great. Aliens is great. What do you want me to say? Yeah, we'll do a Patreon episode on it at some point. He disappeared for a long time after Titanic. People were like, what is he going to do next? Like, you have this gigantic blockbuster. What will you follow it up with? And finally, boom, 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 Avatar arrives. Global sensation. Well, I saw it opening night. I uh, I did not see it open. Did I? I saw it very early on. I, I was in IMAX. 3D. And, uh, I remember that. Oh, fuck that, James Cameron for cursing us for, with 3D for 10 years. Oh, yeah. And also just destroying cinema single-handedly by facilitating the whole digital switch over. Mm-hmm. I do remember that early shot where, like, okay, I haven't seen it since it came out, but Sam Worthington coming out of that, like, cryogenic chamber or something, and just the depth of the 3D in that shot was just so amazing. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking, okay, 3D can be used really well. Like, the water in the movie, just, just the, the smoke floating in the air oh. and some sequences i can't wait for a decade of filmmakers not understanding how to use this technology but forcing us to pay four extra dollars to see darker versions of the film it was so great two months after avatar to go out and see tim burton's alice in wonderland hastily (laughs) hastily post converted into 3d and it just looks like they put mod on the screen and what's crazy about alice in wonderland is like it was all shot on cgi green screens should have been easy to put it to 3d still look like shit probably looked bad before they turned it to 3D. But you're jumping on the train, right? That Avatar, it's been made fun of, even though it's a massive phenomenon around the world. There are stage shows in China, hugely popular ride in Florida, like Avatar, I don't remember what it's called. The Great Ride of the Nevi, I think, or something like that. But we've all heard what has become received wisdom over the last 10 years of like, Avatar was the biggest movie ever made and it left no cultural footprint. Mm -hmm. It did leave a cultural footprint. Yes, and the movie... Yeah, not that good. (laughs) 
Well, there's been a new sort of backlash to the backlash. You've heard people say that actually it is really good and that actually its politics are very good. It's an anti-colonial film. Mm-hmm. And sure, I, I Can I introduce that. you to a little film called Dances with Wolves, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sam Worthington's so boring in the movie. I don't like looking at the aliens. <laughs> like, that's a big problem. Okay, I don't know if I can really speak to Avatar at this point because I you saw... You coward. <laughs> I saw it opening night and I was bored stiff. <laughs> and when I pressed, hey, let's watch Avatar for next week, you're like, no. I, just, I know what it is. I just don't want to watch it. I <laughs> yeah. don't enjoy it. I don't like being in that world. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would love it, actually, if I saw it this time. I'll tell you what, though. I'm excited to see the next one. Are you? Yeah, Avatar 2. And I'll tell you why. Because he has been trapped in this Avatar dungeon for way too long. I, what could it? What could come out? I am excited to see what new technology does. Is there going to be a machine in the theater that, <laughs> that, shake you? that sucks your dick? Maybe <laughs> while you watch it? <laughs> will James Cameron, like a robot, like T-1000 James Cameron, come to introduce the film? And then will he give you a massage while yep. you watch it? And, I mean, and when he leaves, he's like, James, out. And then he like has a jetpack and he flies out of the theater I, I feel the tide turning back in avatar's favor i feel anticipation for the new avatar in the same he way waited that, long enough yeah like the cycle of nostalgia has finally mm-hmm. come around and also top gun right now even people who don't love the first top gun me and you are, i mean let, let's eat crow we said when top gun 2 we saw trailers all the time like it's gonna be bad it's got a bad director yep. it's gonna be terrible putting my words on a plate and eating them right now yeah but eating fun. that chew because that movie is a delight and i feel like okay one of the things that that's great about Top Gun 2 is it's a it's a movie movie. Mm. It's a good piece of machinery. It's oiled really well. It works like a goddamn movie is supposed to. And I feel like James Cameron can deliver some of that with Avatar 2, possibly. The it's, man knows how to make a movie. Especially that he is the auteur of this product. There are no producers pushing him in one direction or the other or saying, you have to do this for this particular market. Uh, the previs did the action scene for you. No, none of this has happened on Avatar 2. It is pure Cameron. <laughs> Anyway, I want to read just a like a paragraph of what Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote about the abyss, because I think it's funny, but also there's a little bit that I disagree with. He wrote, I'm not forgetting that about 40% of the movie was shot underwater and that it's full of state-of-the-art effects. To be sure, some of its technical achievements are rather specialized. The publicity materials boast that the abyss is the first motion picture to record scripted dialogue onto tape during underwater filming, a first that reminds me of the invention by one of the three stooges of the first ballpoint pen to write under whipped cream. (laughs) So that's funny. But then later he says, state-of-the-art cliches, however, are still cliches, and this movie kicks around more than a few of them. And I think he's right, but also... Cliches are cliches for a reason. Yeah, sometimes cliches work. Yes. As I said right at the beginning of this episode, no one does it better than Cameron. It's like getting in a car. You're like, I've ridden in a bunch of cars. Like, yeah, this is the best car. It handles the best. It goes the fastest it looks the best like you want to ride in that car yeah there are lots of reasons we go to the movies and that's one of them when is avatar 2 coming out i gotta you know book off my week you know sleep in front of the theater get ready christmas i think this christmas <laughs> I, I don't believe it personally uh i'm gonna wait for 10 years for this i'm gonna wait until all uh the next three come out and then i can watch them as a complete story oh God. can you even i can't believe that sam worthington is back <laughs> starring in these movies i think it speaks uh, that speaks well of cameron that he's stayed loyal to his boy he could have just i don't know uh removed him and replaced him with jay courtney well you know why sam worthington was in so many starring roles right is that he got cast in avatar and people were like well there's got to be something here because avatar took so long to come out he had a bunch of starring roles in movies and people were like no no he's that wasn't he in terminator salvation before avatar came out nope i believe that it did come out maybe before but he was cast in avatar first that's what like that created the buzz of like who is this it guy we need him now before avatar 
it comes out. Cameron's not infallible. Nope, he is not. I mean, Sam Worthington is the, the one, you know, the uh, mistake that he's made the in his career. one flaw in the diamond. <laughs> yeah. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Liam LaRue. And it goes, astonished to discover Jean-Luc Godard is both still alive and younger than Clint Eastwood. By a couple of months, maybe. <laughs> well, it's still younger, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So my question is, given I have recently seen both Bird and Mo Better Blues, what are the pod thoughts on the spat between Clint Eastwood and Spike Lee? I'm a huge fan of both. I just guess they don't understand each other. Okay, well, this is stretching back a little bit in history. But when the movie Flags of Our Fathers came out, which was Clint Eastwood's movie, actually, it was the year after. So Clint Eastwood had a World War II movie called Flags of Our Fathers. And then the year later, Spike Lee had Miracle at St. Anna, which was all about uh, some of the black soldiers who fought in the Second World War. And he said something in an interview, words to the effect of most World War II movies have just been about white people. Look at Flags of Our Fathers. You don't see any black people in that movie. Well, where are we? We fought in that war too. And Clint Eastwood took great offense. He said something like, Spike Lee should shut his face. And I remember Spike... I'm surprised Clint Eastwood wasn't like, who's Spike Lee? (laughs) And Spike Lee responded with something like, can't talk to me that way. We're not on the plantation, old man. Something like that. And uh, not a direct quote, but the word plantation was in there. Mm -hmm. And since then, I know they have been photographed together. I know they have shaken hands in public. They're both rich. Yeah, I think uh, I think there is probably mutual respect there. And I do remember that when Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You came out in the same year, Boots Riley had some harsh words to say about Black Klansman. And I remember reading an interview with Spike Lee where he said something like something that I've learned in the past is you don't get into these things because it overshadows the movie. Mm. So that seems to be where he's at it's, it seems that there is some perhaps mutual regret over that. You know, when we go out to our uh, giant mega cabins that are sitting beside each other, it's a little bit awkward when we go and pick up the daily paper. I think that that says it all. Yeah. So our next letter is from Ben Woodward, and he goes, Sought to Michael Haneke. Hey, Justin and Will. I wish I could write a more unique email, but I regret to inform you that I am yet another person thanking you for the many hours of listening you've provided me during my rather rote job. In sincerity, I think the fact that you've received many of these sorts of emails from people like myself throughout the years is a testament to the quality of the podcast and the two of you as hosts. Oh. Well, thank you very much. And if you're listening to this and you're not a Patreon subscriber, <laughs> you better become a Patreon subscriber. Not this particular person, just whoever. Because, you know, we don't give you any ads. There's no cash for mattresses, no stamps.com. You don't have to rush to hit the fast forward button on this podcast. Maybe once. And, you know, no adamandeve.com. Instead, you can just hire me to come to your home to to spice up. (laughs) We're very available. Spice up the life in your bedroom. And so if you appreciate that, you should become Patreon subscribers. We want 600 patrons before episode 300, which I think is three or four episodes away. How many times can we do this? We haven't reached 300 episodes yet, so I can keep asking for 600. Also, we're canceling the podcast if we don't reach it. So, you know, I hope we get there. This letter continues. I wanted to ask you for your thoughts on Michael Haneke. He's been referenced numerous times on the podcast, uh, such as comparing Halloween Resurrections to funny games. But I don't think he's ever been the subject of a specific discussion. Halloween Resurrections to funny games. I do not remember doing that. That feels like something that would have just like a joke. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're trying to fill the air in some way. I I think because Halloween Resurrection is like a media satire in some way. (laughs) And so one of us clearly went for some very low hanging, lame 
lame joke fruit to compare uh, to that seems games. like a uh high hanging fruit for only the intellectuals in the audience so it's probably me that said that i'm then. saying that because it was probably me Will. Okay. from the way you guys talk about him i get the vibe that neither of you are particular into his brand of filmmaking uh, you guessed correctly. I don't really like him, although I think he's made some movies that are good. I get him. <laughs> I do not rush out to see his new motion pictures. There's not a lot to get there, is there? Mm. I mean, once you hear Life him, is hell! Once you hear him talk about what Funny Games is about, it's like, oh, okay, that's what it's about. And I also, oh, Funny Games is ridiculous, honestly, but uh, I don't know. Amour? Do I ever need to see Amour again? I don't think so. What did I get out of Amour? I don't think I got anything out of that. I do enjoy that he remade Funny Games just to trick an American audience into seeing the film, not expecting an art house picture. I don't like the the idea of Funny Games where it's like, well, shame on you people for wanting to see violence. We're going to give you the worst violence ever. And, and you, the stupid audience, we're going to trick you. <laughs> you don't like that? I love that. I mean, I love him grifting an audience that expects like it's just a domestic thriller i don't when you say it like that i like it but the fact that he actually thinks there's an intellectual project at work there where he's like all violent movies i mean he, he guy's never seen a violent movie okay he, he, he cannot, <laughs> you don't see you uh, don't think he's like a igmar bergman that he goes home and watches like james bond films to go to sleep in benny's video the kid is watching the toxic avenger okay to this guy the toxic avenger is the same movie as the guinea pig movies <laughs> or or any of those movies it's the same as hostile it's the same as like he he has no there's no texture in his understanding of what a violent movie is what does he enjoy for uh, fun I don't know. I don't care to know, honestly. I will say, though... <laughs> Reading I, the great philosophers. I think uh, I liked Caché, and I like the piano teacher, so I'm capable of... Yeah, you know, Caché, that crazy sequence when the violence happens. Whoa! Well, I did see it in a theater, and I do still remember the enormous shock of that scene, just the gasp that was in the And audience. then you sitting uh, as the end credits are about to start at any moment now. <laughs> what am I supposed to be watching here, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're going to do a Michael Haneke. We, well, we're going to do every filmmaker ever. Point. I'm surprised that I've never pitched it before, which really goes and shows the lack of passion I have for his work. There seemed to have been a period, maybe mm, 10 years ago, where like Michael Haneke was one of those filmmakers oh, yeah. that everybody talked about. And I don't feel they talk about him like that anymore. I don't know whether that's... I mean, it's been a while since his last one. There was mm. the movie, I think it was called Happy Endings. Happy End. <laughs> yeah. An ironic title, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, Haneke, you got me again. And that one was not particularly well-received. And then his one before that was Amour, which was 10 years ago. And then I also think, I mean, people aren't really re-watching those movies. I don't think there's... I mean, people have talked about them, but I genuinely don't think there's all that much to say about them, really. Mm. I mean, they all kind of work on one level for this me. This shelf of CESA statements written at universities would say differently, Will. Oh, yeah. I bet they're all identical. <laughs> yeah, exactly the same. As I will prove in this text. Oh, my God. Throw it in the fire. So thank you very much for that letter. Uh, I hope that you're not angrily throwing the your... Uh... I'll, I'll just say, if you like Michael Haneke, that's great. That's great, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm all for people liking movies. Mm -hmm. And as I say, I think The Piano Teacher is good. And I very much enjoy... None of them. <laughs> None of them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just can't name a single one. <laughs> I, uh, like I said, I like the trick that Funny Games plays. Okay. Funny Games is a well-made movie. Mm -hmm. Especially that the original version is that kind of art house film that the people watching it are a self-selected audience. While the second one, the American remake, is not that. It was literally designed as a trick. And it and it failed. Yeah, it did. Only, nobody nobody only, went to go see it. Only the art house audience went to see it. And even then, not many of them saw it. Really? I'm surprised that... I mean, there's got to be some blue hairs who stumbled into it. You know who like, 
watches funny games is teenagers at sleepover parties who are like, I hear this movie's fucked up. Wait, did that happen to you? No. Oh, okay. I'm just hypothetic. Maybe they don't. But I just imagine a young Will bringing funny games being like, oh man, you're going to love this you, one. You can go on clickbait websites and you'll find funny games on the list next to like a Serbian film on those lists of most fucked up movies ever. That's who's watching the movie. Michael Haneke failed at his goal. But funny games is not even that screwed up though. <laughs> like It's unpleasant. Certainly. Yeah, it is unpleasant, but I definitely would not bring it to a party. Give me Toxic Avenger any day of the week over funny games. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are you doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We will be talking about the best Mission Impossible movie, and that is Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, the best one. A film by John Woo. John Woo, the best action filmmaker ever made, which logically leads me to believe that he would make the best Mission Impossible film. But we'll find out. I haven't seen it in a really long time. It's John Woo's To Catch a Thief, uh, his own words. A movie by Hitchcock? I don't very much like that much. Yeah, we should have talked about that one on the bad Hitchcock episode. <laughs> yeah, it completely uh, slipped my mind. So that's what we're doing on our Patreon. Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. What are we doing next week, Will? A sellout month is over. Oh, whew. And we are now going so to... So much do- work. Now <laughs> we're going to what the, you know, the real peeps want. Yeah, now we're really selling out. <laughs> and by selling out, I mean we're talking about one of the most obscure filmmakers we've ever talked about. We're talking about Arthur Bresson Jr., the director of a movie called Buddies that came out in the 80s and was the first movie, the first commercial narrative film to deal with the AIDS crisis. He also started his career in gay pornography. There's a Vinegar Syndrome partner label called Altered Innocence that just put out a great Blu-ray set of two of his early films, films that very much exist at the intersection of gay pornography and arthouse cinema. They're called Passing Strangers and Forbidden Letters. And uh, I'm just excited to explore this topic. Once again, hetero cis guys talking about gay filmmakers. We're always expanding our palette here. <laughs> yes, and we hope you will join us for that discussion. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We mentioned Top Gun Maverick earlier in this episode. As we record this, Top Gun Maverick is, I think, unquestionably the most talked about movie of the year, the most loved movie of the year. It's it's uniting America. RRR is like, what about us? RRR is definitely up there, too. Uh, Justin, you said that you've seen Top Gun Maverick three times. I have. I saw it on my own, and then I saw it with some friends, and then I saw it with my family because they said, we want to see Top Gun Maverick. They didn't want to go see the new Jurassic Park, which, let's be honest, we know is going to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> Just terrible, but it was all I was really that was playing. And so we went to go see Top Gun Maverick again, and it was a delight each time. Each time. Did you discover... Two in IMAX. <laughs> did you discover new things in it the third time, or is it like taking the same roller coaster three times? It's kind of like taking the same roller coaster three times, but it's... Kind of like when you watch it, you feel the construction of the roller coaster. And you're like, oh, this is built so well. Each part kind of like locking in with each other. So I watched a bad Steven Seagal movie on the weekend called Into the Sun, one of his direct-to-video ones. And it's one of those movies where Steven Seagal can never be vulnerable. He's the coolest guy in the world, like all of Seagal's movies. Not a moment when he has any doubt. And I mean, I thought of Steven Seagal when I was watching Top Gun Maverick because, again, Tom Cruise is the coolest guy in the world. He's awesome. He's he's amazing but tom cruise is smart everyone around him is smart they know that you've got to give him a couple of moments throughout where he's 
kind of lightly razzed a little. He's vulnerable a little bit. Well, so the thing that I was hoping about Top Gun Maverick, but I had my doubts because I don't like the first Top Gun. I think we talked about it on our Tony Scott episode. You were a little bit warmer than I was on I, it. I don't like the first Top Gun. So like a sequel to it that looks like based on all the trailers is just nostalgia bait. I mean, Will had the joke that Ed Harris in the trailer because it's the only person older than Tom Cruise who can get to <laughs> appear in it. But something that I hoped and that watching the movie, I'm like, mm-mm, yep, it came to pass. And that this feels like a Christopher McQuarrie directed film. The director of the last two Mission Impossibles, who's essentially worked on every good Tom Cruise movie since, uh, or just every one since Jack Reacher, I believe. So what do you know about McQuarrie's involvement if there he was... He is the, a producer, not an executive producer. He is also a screenwriter. And if you look at the other two names of the screenwriter, they definitely have nothing that they did on the screen. One of them is Aaron Kruger, who did like Scream 3 and the Transformers Michael Bay films, the Brothers Grimm. Like, there's nothing of his work on the screen mm -hmm. and the film even if you didn't know this you'd watch it and go man this is feels exactly like a mission impossible side mission well especially the last act of the movie the whole mission scene where all the twists and turns mm -hmm. feel like the kind of construction you'd get in a mission impossible movie all the uh, daring exploits and amazing stunts and christopher McQuarrie, i don't know if he has like a blood oath with tom cruise he has to keep making these movies because i remember after the last mission impossible he said i cannot do another one i would rather have leprosy than make another mission impossible and then a couple of months later he's like i'm making two of them back to back well probably the search church of scientology came to him and said we have too much dirt on you from all those auditing sessions and, <laughs> yeah uh, you... i don't think christopher mcquarrie is a scientologist i mean he's in those circles i guess like you can't escape right i'm sure he signed a billion year contract of some kind or other i mean the, uh, top gun mavericks directed by joseph kasinski which is uh, people have tried to argue uh, oh you know his fireman movie's really good you know what i'll be honest i haven't seen it but i did see tron legacy i did see oblivion the tom cruise film that he not made good. they're not good so it's like, I can't really see his work in this. This is a McQuarrie and Tom Cruise product. And when you were talking about moments of vulnerability, I mean, Tom Cruise, I would say he is a better actor in this film. Like he gets more moments to be Tom Cruise acting than he's ever had since Magnolia. I'm thinking of the scene with Val Kilmer when he oh. has like tears in his eyes. Oh my God. Me, here's me, a guy who doesn't even like the first Top Gun, moved, <laughs> yes. moved, I tell you, by that scene. Because there's so much intertextual stuff there, it's right? It's like, you know that these guys came up together. and You know and, Val Kilmer's actually sick as well. And you know that like Tom Cruise is still the biggest movie star in the world and Val Kilmer, a lot didn't go right for him over the years. Mm -hmm. and, and But here they are together. And I mean, the whole film, for people who haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, it's all about how the world doesn't want any more Tom Cruises anymore. <laughs> any like hot uh, shot pilots who are doing it their own way you know it's time for cgi and young bucks that are uh generic miles tellers if you will to take over what did you think of the action scenes in the film uh fantastic i'm not even somebody who usually cares about aerial stuff no i think it it's a big problem is it's kind of boring when you watch them where you're like you, the camera's barely capturing what's happening and the person's usually like green screen behind them being like whoa not here almost all of it is them in real planes being flown around and saying their lines didn't you think how good it was that you spend basically the whole second act of the movie seeing the mission over and over and over again as they rehearse it and so then by that point when they go on the mission you are so primed for it well you're that's like, classic heist they uh, go story here, they structure go up, they go down they go up they go down and then when it fucks up you're like oh it's fucked up now. This wasn't supposed to happen on the mission. I do think that if they're going to do missions like this, they should use drones. 
the mission doesn't work out. I uh, very much enjoy the fact that it's the most anonymous country in the world. Oh, yeah. There's snow there. And I like how a lot of people are like, well, it's Russia. And it's like, the whole mission is to keep them from making nukes. Russia has tons of nukes. Like, you don't need to stop them doing that kind of stuff. Well, it's it's every... Maybe enemy. North Korea? Well, maybe North Korea. I mean, they are... The, the naval base is in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, doesn't it kind of look like the Middle East when they're when they're doing their test runs? Yeah, but that, yeah, when they're doing their test runs for that stuff. So, so it could be any kind. It's all countries. It doesn't even matter. It's just about Tom Cruise being a badass that's right and if you can't buy into that then i mean you don't watch a tom cruise movie <laughs> like, i just i love the scene when he's sitting on the beach and he just grins to the camera <laughs> did you notice that he's shirtless probably cgi augmented for a while and then when he sits down he puts his shirt back on he's shirtless for six seconds yes so you don't have to look at his body Do you remember when he was shirtless in the, the mummy? mummy and they did cgi mile <laughs> was there a trailer that came out that like didn't have those augmentations on and then in the movie there was it's it's great because i mean he is almost 60 years old and he's in great shape for 60 but mm. there is only so much you can do at that point christopher McQuarrie did not work on the mummy <laughs> i mean not to shock anybody so you know the ones that he doesn't work on you know what christopher McQuarrie worked on edge of tomorrow well, he was one. one of the uh screenwriters on that film so you know you need that McQuarrie touch to get the perfect tom cruise so you're excited for the next mission impossible film this summer oh of course i was <laughs> hooting and hollering when i saw that trailer oh so good can't wait i mean he's definitely gonna die in the, ne in the last one right he has to i'm not in the predictions game tom cruise I expected that Top Gun ended with Tom Cruise died shooting the final shot of this movie. Because that would be apt. That's what you would, you would want at the end. Yeah. 